0: You'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
1: You know, I think that my view is that people are wrong on the internet. They're wrong in politics. I'm going to tell them they're wrong. I'm going to gather good evidence and make good arguments and make them in a way people can hear. And and I'm going to be right. And then people are going to be right. And then it's all going to be great. And I don't really believe that's true anymore. Hello, welcome to the Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is the AMA episode, another AMA episode. I'm joined here by Sean Illing. Sean, how's it going? Hello, good to be back. Who will be your reader listener, I guess, representative. Um, we've chosen a bunch of great questions. He has had the final call and he'll be here asking them of me, but also uh, following up on me and making sure I don't just weasel away. But these were great questions. Uh, I thank you all for for, for sending them in. Um, all right, Sean, I, I hand I hand control over to you. All right, let's do it. The first question
2: is from Sfi, and he asks... Or she. Or she. What is your process in its ideal state for how you go about preparing for a podcast or a discussion or an interview? How do you think about the questions you'll ask and the place you want to go?
1: So I think some version of this is probably the most common question. And so let me let me try to figure out what it is. So a couple things. One is that I've come to realize I can only do this well if I actually have a conversation I want to have. So I'm lucky this podcast is big enough, has enough audience that we get reached out to by a lot of like famous people. And you don't see that many of them on here because unless there's something I really want to talk with them about, it doesn't work. So the, the preparation uh, for me is first finding people who I actually, there's something they're doing, something they're saying, something they're within, something they're seeing that I'm genuinely curious about. Um, and then the other thing is trying as much as I can to, in my preparation, where I really do try to read their books and read their work and or listen to them or whatever it might be, kind of immerse myself in the way they think enough that it melds in with how I think. I, I, I think the crucial, the crucial thing on – the crucial difference between a conversation show like this one and a traditional interview show is these are all conversations I want to have with a person. And so if I'm not able to find those points of entry, if I'm not able to find the stuff where when I was integrating their work, it actually raised these questions authentically in me, it's not going to work. And that's why ultimately like, it has to be me who reads the book or it has to be me who, who does the prep because only I can have the reactions I would actually have. So I think that's the key thing for me is actually figuring out what is the conversation I want to have with them as opposed to the conversation that I think is most obvious to have with them or um, you know, is a conversation you might have if you've not absorbed their work into your own model of the world and seen where it creates tension or friction.
2: I mean, this is something I've, I sort of fluctuate with in my interviews. I mean, you're someone who comes to an interview with a boatload of prepared questions sort of pre-written and ready to go, or you just do you just consume as much of this person's book or papers as you can and trust that you've got enough in your head to, you know, let the conversation flow.
1: I try to always have something like 12 or 15 questions prepared. And I often don't use them, but they're a spine for me to come back to. Uh, I feel like there's a real trade-off here, right? The more questions you have prepared, the harder it is to actually be in the conversation. Because the more you'll look down at your question sheet and think, OK, well, I'm going to get to that next. Like The worst thing to do is to have the person you're sitting with be giving an answer and your head is somewhere else. And the more preparation you have, the more you'll be looking over your notes. On the other hand, another bad thing to do is they give you an answer and then you don't have a response and then like everything just falls dead. <laughs> so there's some middle ground between the two that I don't think I always find uh, for what it's worth. But I I try not to have too many questions and the better I know a subject, the the smaller those questions will get. But um, but I always try to have something to fall back on. And if only to remind me that once a certain Question: Space has lost its interest. I can go to there. In some ways, the the, the questions are more prompts. It these are the different areas to cover than they are like sort of one, two, three, four within an area. Because I, I trust that once we're within an area, I can figure out you know where the conversation is. Trusting the conversation is hard, though. Yeah,
2: but that's part of the the beauty of having a, a long form podcast where it, the, <laughs> you know the
1: conversation has room to breathe. Can just put, go forever.
2: Yeah, but there's there you can kind of it can go wherever it goes, and there's not a lot of pressure to to kind of I, keep it contained.
1: I got an email um, yesterday from, I guess, a listener. Maybe you're listening now. And it's like this thing, like, like, you use the word and too much. And everything you say is too long. And you're using and to string together too many comments. And so the most you should ever say on the podcast is 25 to 40 words. Which one? I like love the chutzpah of that email. It's great to just say like, this The show is named after you, but 25 words. It's that's so weirdly limit. arbitrary. It's good. <laughs> uh, I, I kind of appreciate it, though. But but the thing about it is that when I do that, it's because I'm thinking about what they're saying in real time. If you hear a really sharp question, I mean, sometimes, obviously, something brings up a just, can you say more of what you mean by that? Sometimes you get something and it's obvious to to, to be short. But thinking things aloud is fuzzy. And if you're really in the conversation, you're going to end up doing that. And so there isn't a way to be as polished as I would sometimes like me to be, or sometimes I think the audience might like me to be, and also have these go where they're really meant to go, because people are not polished in real time. Um, I, I think I'm a reasonably like I've done a lot of cable, so I'm a reason I'm reasonably concise when I need to be, but that's mostly when my brain is turned off, right? That's mostly when I'm just like giving you the response to actually absorb something and 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 wonder about it. It requires a wooliness that I think podcasting allows, but you know certainly has its trade-offs.
2: Yeah. All right, question two. This is from Laura. She says, I see you as someone who by exposing listeners to a lot of conservatives, you are actually helping to hold the center. Is that an intentional goal on your part?
1: No, it's not an intentional goal. And I don't think it's something I'm doing either. Uh, I don't really believe in concepts of the center. I probably use the term sometimes, but I think it's a... It means something that doesn't, on its own merit, make any sense. Um, is it just a positioning between wherever left and right have gone, no matter how far they've moved? Um, does it just not mean anything at all? Does it mean where the American public is? Often, things that are considered quite fringe in the conversation are quite popular with the public. So, number one, I don't believe in the center. I do get a fair number of questions that are in some way or another like this one: like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, what is, what is this whole project about? And much more so than. Uh, I almost am comfortable admitting, this show is just my reporting. This is how I report, I mean longer, but this is how as a reporter, someone and, and as a, primarily an explanatory reporter, somebody trying to develop like models and context for the world and then convey that to, to, to the audience, this is how I do my reporting. And so the show overwhelmingly is me trying to add to my model of the world, the model that can then inform my work. And so the show will go very deep on things where I'm really trying to do a lot of work. So identity is something where I've been trying to build that model out. I think identity was the core force in the 2016 election. And so somebody who thought a lot about policy and not as much about identity, and I don't just mean identity in the way American politics talks about it, but identity in terms of political identities, identity in terms of the way we get called forward to inhabit one identity and not another. I felt like to understand what was happening in politics, I needed to build my understanding of that a lot. And so the show is been very deep in there or the show talks more about meditation than it does about things that might be more important in the world. So it's very directed in a way I try to be pretty honest about by my own interests and my own interests are uh, they relate to talking to people who I don't already agree with um not always right I obviously have a number of people on here who I do agree with but you know I feel like when I have people on here who I do agree with when I'm trying to learn from is their expertise, And oftentimes when I have people I don't agree with, I'm trying to get their expertise as well, but also to inhabit and understand why you would have a part of the argument that isn't intuitive to me. So something that I think has been fairly called out on me before is I'm tougher sometimes on people I don't agree with than people I do. Um, But that's because there's more friction with my model, right? I'm, I'm trying to test what they're saying against what I already believe and see either where I'm coming up short or where I think they're coming up short. The other, the reverse criticism I get is... Why didn't you really kill this guy, right? He left you this opening. (laughs) Or why did you, you know, after asking about that a couple of times, move on? And the answer is that this isn't a debate show. This is a show where I'm trying to learn and create a space where people can join me in that. And so once I've tapped out the quality of the answer I'm going to get, I'm not trying to embarrass people. Um, it's my show. Like, it has my fucking name in the title. It's not a fair fight. <laughs> like, the audience is here. Like, it doesn't... The thing where people want a kind of humiliation on the show, it's not what we're doing. It's not what I'm doing. And in some ways, I think one of the worst things that will happen sometimes for me in conversations is somebody will be saying things I don't agree with and I'll feel I need to represent a side when I already know where that is going. Nothing is being learned there. I'm just... There's a difference between me authentically saying... Here's where I think this falls short, like give me your response versus here's where you're wrong. And I'm not saying there's no value in here's where you're wrong, but I think its value is often quite performative if you already control the venue. Um, And so I try not to do that too much. And it's why um, I'll often, you know, like after a couple of times on something, if I've kind of seen what their answer is, even if their answer is not good, like I'm moving on because I'm trying to find where the answers are good. It's more valuable to me to add to like my understanding of the world and hopefully the audience's understanding of the world than to just like pound in that I think I'm right about something.
2: Well, there's a a follow-up question to this that I think is closely related. It's almost sort of what really is a follow-up to this and I'll just ask it now. It's from Paul. And he says, I had a question after he listened to your show with Eric Kaufman, right, the conservative writer who wrote the book, White Shift. And he asked, what do you get out of interviewing conservative intellectuals? What have you learned and what are your goals going into an interview like that?
1: So my goal there was finally, I think uh, Kaufman's book is really interesting. Um, I don't agree with big parts of it, but I think it's interesting. And I wanted to understand how he would talk about it. I would say my frustration with that interview is I think it was a he remained a little abstract. I think that um I think the book is a little bit more clear on what he's saying than I was able to get him to be, um, which is a very common thing, I think, in dialogue. I've often had the issue with both people on the left and the right that I'll have read something by them or read a series by them or read a critique of me by them. And I'll have them on the show. And like what I want them to do is like deliver that to me so we can talk about it, but it'll get a little more soft pedaled. But you know, with Kaufman, um, or with all sorts of Andrew Sullivan, things like that, conversations like that, this is someone who I think is smart, who sees the world in a really deeply different way than I do. And I want to understand what are the the key divergences for us. So, one thing for him and for me, like we actually have a, a an unusually similar foundation. I think both of us are much more willing to say than most people are that the foundational issue driving American politics and maybe Western politics as well as demographic change and people and in particular the the white majority's response to demographic change um and from there, I think what I saw in that interview and 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 reading his book was a lot comes down to one how um how much you think society can absorb diversity. I think I just believe in America's capacity to be a more diverse nation, more peacefully than maybe Eric does or maybe Andrew does. Another is just in how much actual racism you think there is in society, how you define that kind of discrimination and prejudice and how much you think it affects people's life chances now. I think I have a higher, a significantly higher estimation on that. Um, and there are probably a couple others. But I really want to make sure that I understand um, the arguments I'm arguing against. You know, and then there are places where, you know, he'll get me to think about something just like a little bit differently. Like, I think a question that his work raises that I think it is worth people considering, and I wish I had posted to him more frontally, was something he says is that it is reasonable for an ethno-majority in a country to limit immigration from certain areas and limiting immigration entirely, but also from certain areas in order to retain its majority. And so when I hear that, I get uncomfortable. Um, it That sounds kind of racist to me. Um, and I think like one way of framing that question is, well, when does that become white nationalism? Right? When does saying that you're going to run immigration policy to retain um, enough white majority, when is that just white nationalism? On the other hand, we obviously have a lot of limits on immigration. That is something that is not that controversial in this country. It is not that Democrats are for open borders. It is not that liberals in general are for open borders. Um, It is not that we do immigration without any kind of selection effect uh, or selection decisions around it. It's not that most people think of merit-based immigration. So I think that one thing I've been trying to do with people on the left and the right around immigration is try to understand their limiting principles. And – with Kaufman, I think that his are very different, very, very fundamentally different than mine. But I think the way he frames that is actually it helped me articulate a question that I wasn't able to ask correctly before, which is, what is the distinction between um, white nationalism and valid preservation or you know, worrying about diversity or, or, or worrying about um, the tumult of diversity? I mean, I've been trying to formulate this principle for myself. And I think that my principle on this is that Given the moral commitment I feel around immigration and given how much I think it helps the people coming and often the people here, I would like to see basically as much immigration as possible consistent with political stability. I think you can have so much that you have a kind of backlash that overruns the good it is doing both for the people coming and for the country itself. Um, I don't know where that is. I would like to – I think it's higher than we are now, but it's also a dynamic question. It's how is the political system talking about it? How is it absorbing it? Where are people going? In what context are they coming here? Do people feel that the system is fair? Um, There's a lot going on there. But I don't think I'm going to understand the world well uh, by just talking to people who already see it the way I do. I think I need to see it the way other people do and then decide, is there something there that either I was wrong about or just that I need to be more textured about? Or is it just important for me to understand what other people think? One corollary point to this is that the other thing that is coming out more and more in my work and in my reading is that a lot of political decision-making and difference is just driven by different psychological attitudes. I mean, this is something Kaufman would say too, that the the open versus closed dimension is really important in terms of where people end up. So it's also, I want to hear how other people filter the same information as me. Um, and I think a lot of the conservatives who come on just like literally have a different orientation towards the world uh, than I do. But understanding that orientation and being able to understand that how somebody who has a different orientation than me will absorb the same kind of information. I think that's really important in understanding politics right now. You don't get to have a politics. It's all just composed of people like you. Um, and I mean here psychologically. Uh, you have to understand what people not like you are going to think.
2: I'm curious where you think the line is. Like, When does a conversation with someone you disagree with cease to be productive and just become in exercise and talking past each so, other.
1: I don't have people on the show whose views I don't on some level respect. Doesn't mean I don't disagree with their views quite profoundly. I wouldn't have Kellyanne Conway on the show. I'm not gonna have someone on to lie. I wouldn't have somebody who I think of as just a bomb thrower. Even if they're reasonably smart, I wouldn't have them on if I didn't think there was something for me to learn. Again, like there's a performance there. I'm I'm quite comfortable in my capacity to win a debate, um, or at least to be in a debate. I'm not afraid of I mean you can see who comes on the show like it, it, I'm not afraid of of disagreement but I'm afraid of wasting people's time including my own and I, I, I just don't see a reason for it so I think that the like the like the the measure for me is like do I honestly think this is a conversation that is going to make me smarter in some way and the audience smarter in some way and it doesn't mean that I will agree with it but is there going to be value will there be insights will there be a better ability to model a way of thinking about the world um and if so, in general, I want to have those people on. Um, and if not, I don't. Like there are there's a lot of folks out there who I um, who I agree with, who I don't have on the show and who I disagree with, who I don't have on the show. And I think that in general, I'm looking for this show uh, prizes, a kind of reflection, like a like a willingness to reflect in public um, and and to ground that reflection in at least some, hopefully empiricism, uh, not always 100 percent, but you know, none of us are. And so I think I'm in general looking for people like that. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for people who I think I can hear and the audience can hear. To have somebody on who none of us could hear because it would just be infuriating from the, from the get-go because it's not being done in good faith like an Ann Coulter. I mean, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be good for anybody. Similarly, that's why I don't have more politicians on the show, by the way. I don't bring on that many people who I feel are going to be constrained in what they can say. So plenty of politicians who I think are important. I even maybe think they're admirable. But if I think they're going to only be able to come on and give, you know, the line that their political incentives allow them to give, then that's not of all that much value to me. There are a couple There's Sometimes I do an interview just because it is a newsmaker quality. And for my own work or, you know, for the show, I want to there are certain questions I want to see how the newsmaker responds to. But I almost think of that. It's like a show that exists in a slightly alternative universe from the one I'm normally conducting.
2: Feel free to punt on this if you like. But is there a conversation that you've had on this show that sticks out to you as a case where you reached out in good faith, expecting to have a productive conversation with someone you disagree with, and it just resulted in a complete disaster?
1: I don't think so. I don't think I've had any. I think of the episodes I regard as disasters are almost always somebody who's a politician or someone otherwise quite famous coming on and not saying anything. I have not had any disagreements on this show that I've not learned a lot from. Um, I... Think all of them. I mean, I think probably the closest thing to a true debate I've had on the show is Sam Harris. I've learned a lot from that. I I I really value that episode, actually. Um, and then if you like go through other people, no, like I I think in general it's been really productive. Uh, yeah, I think the episodes I'm the episodes I am bummed out about is when somebody comes and it feels like it ended up being a bit of a PR exercise. As long as like there's an honest engagement, that that engagement it doesn't have to end in agreement. It doesn't even have to end on uh, with us on the same page. As long as you know there is uh, like enough interesting friction there to see what happens to ideas when they bounce off of each other, I think that's valuable. And again, this show to me it's it's not it's never the final word in something, right? I mean, to, in some ways, like I think I think of my final product as my writing, um, and so. This is a, a form of reporting. And so the way in which a show is provisional, but it then adds to what I'm able to do in future shows is really or future pieces or videos or whatever. Like there's a lot of value in that to me.
2: All right. Next question is from Joe. And he asks, I'm curious about your work process. Do you have any unusual work habits or requirements such as materials, location, software, beverages,
1: you name it? Oh, that's a good question. Um, All right. I I can think of a couple things here. So one is that I almost always work with a paper notebook open next to me. One of the things I find happens a lot when I'm working is I will get an idea for something else or my mind will try to distract me with something else. You need to call the whatever. You need to take out the trash. You need to, you need to, you need to. Did you make that Amazon order? Whatever it might be. And I find if I just keep a piece of paper open next to me and just jot down these to do's as they come to me. I'm able to put them down as they come in, as opposed to feeling that pressure that I actually have to go do that, you know, I have to go find that piece of information or send that email. I, I know it's there and I can go deal with it later. So one thing that, that I find really useful is working with a, an open sheet of paper next to me. Um, I tend to listen when I'm writing to one song on repeat for very long periods of time. Um, you got to find the mood right, you know, is the piece you're writing is a channeling Something angry, hopeful, anxious, calm, reflective, what is it? like I find mood to be really important to my writing, but if the music is changing, I can't concentrate, so I tend to have one thing repeating for for very long periods, and it's very funny because I'll sometimes look back in an old piece and I'll be like hit with the song I was listening to when i when i read when I wrote it um what's, and then what's on loop right now? What's on loop right now?, oh, that's a great question, primarily right now, um easy by Tycho. <laughs> Which is a great song. Yes, it is. I think it's easy, right? That's a new one? Yeah. Yeah. Um, One thing I love about Tycho is like all Tycho sounds like Tycho. And this one sounds a lot like his remix of C, which I loved. And so I'm I'm real happy with the new release. Um, And then the only, I think, kind of technological requirements, I only read on Kindle. Um, Really? Yeah, only. And like if I get review copies, I will find a way. Like I will just wait and get the thing on Kindle if I want to read it. And it's because on Kindle, I can highlight things and put in notes that are then searchable. I don't have a great memory. And I often want to come back to a book like a year after I read it. And so being able then to open up like the Kindle repository of like I highlight very aggressively. And so I'll have in a book 100 highlights. And then going, being able to go back and read through those to refresh myself on what was in that book and what what did I find interesting in it is incredibly useful for my work. I don't feel this is strongly in fiction. I, I tend to read fiction on Kindle just because that's where I tend to read. But I'm happy to read fiction outside of it. But I read a lot of nonfiction, and I overwhelmingly do it um, in, in Kindle just because my memory isn't good enough to do that to do it any other way.
2: Do you write best in the morning, late at night? What's your what's your stick? Probably
1: morning. Um, not I don't I don't tend to write at night. Um, I find it's not because I don't write fine. It's that I find I can't sleep. Like writing charges me up. It's uh, it's like a it's a it's an energy generator for me, not a, an energy draw. Like a lot of things I do are an energy draw. Writing makes me feel more alive. And so I can't I can't do that kind of work at night or I can't I can't get to bed.
2: <laughs> Is it uh, coffee, tea? What's your beverage of choice? Oh man,
1: I did not used to I, I did not used to do caffeine. Even like a couple of years ago, I basically I'm kind of sensitive to caffeine at and all. Then, yeah, basically, at all. Um, and then in the last couple of years, I've been more drawn down. I've been doing it more. And then since I've had a kid, I've been pow- like, <laughs> this is the first time I regularly drank non decaf coffee, and I'm drinking so much time, I'm no longer even feeling effect. Uh, so I'm not happy about this. My my new dependent on stimulants, but uh, but it's it's my life.
2: <laughs> well, that actually segues pretty well into the next question, which uh, has someone who's about to have his first. Child, congratulations. In a few Thank you. I'm supremely interested in your answer to this question. And this is from Christopher who asked, How has fatherhood changed your worldview? If it's changed it at all? And a bit wackier question. What is the strangest thing about caring for your son that you really enjoy?
1: Ooh. Um let me take those in reverse order. So the thing that I didn't expect to like about being a father, I I keep not quite knowing how to talk about this because it's one of these things where all the language sounds the same, but like the depth of meaning behind it has changed. Um, so the thing that I didn't understand, or among many things <laughs> I didn't understand about being a father, is there's a real joy in just offering care. Um, and so a little bit like the the question there, I like changing diapers because like it's a way I can care for my son. And there's not that many things I can do. I can hold him. I can sometimes feed him a bottle. And like I can change his diaper, and I like he's very young, so he can't do that much. He can't like have a conversation. So places where I can interact um, or or feel like I'm doing something are very meaningful to me. And we were in the NICU for a while, um, for three weeks. And uh, and by the way, I do want to say thank you to. I got a lot of really lovely notes from all of you during that, um, and they were meaningful to me. Um, but we were in the NICU, and they're just like he was. You I was a father, but not a parent, if that makes sense. Like I wasn't the one keeping him alive. And like changing his diaper was something I could do. Right. There just was not that much I could do at that point. And so I think it just it it developed this very different valence. Um in terms of how it's changed my my views, my outlook, I'm I'm gonna answer this a little bit more politically than personally. Uh, a couple things. Well, one, I should say it's had this quality, which, you know, take it for what it's worth, that it is not taken things I believed and reversed them. It has taken things I believed and deepened them quite dramatically in a couple places. So one, which I think is, you know, this is a little trickier to talk about, but it's made me a lot more pro-choice. We had a really hard, my wife had a really hard pregnancy, um, unbelievable physical discomfort, um, most of it itching for mo- for a lot of it, uh, really, really dangerous complications at the end. And watching her go through that and the aftermath of that, the idea that this is somebody's choice who is not the person bearing it is insane to me. Um, I shouldn't say insane. I understand it. But particularly in those early months, I, I really feel that much more strongly that it is the woman's choice. Um, I don't think it is for somebody else to tell somebody that they need to go through this. It's a dangerous thing to go through. It's a thing that can change you forever to go through. Um, and... I just, yeah, I, I just don't think that's a decision for anybody but the person who's carrying the child to to be able to make. Um, you know, you get into a debate about what is like the point of life and other things. And not, you know, th- these are not easy questions. Um, but when you're talking about those early questions about whether or not somebody is going to keep a new pregnancy, I had always wondered how it made me feel about this. But it made me feel more pro-choice, not less. Definitely. I mean, again, like I've always been pro having paid parental leave. as a a national guarantee the way every other developed country does. But when I was in, particularly in the NICU, the idea, I mean, I could, I could be there every day, all day. The idea that some people couldn't, and I saw people, I saw children there whose parents couldn't, right? I saw children hooked up to wires whose parents couldn't be there. And it broke my heart. It's an indecent thing in our society. I saw parents there who couldn't be at the NICU because they had a little bit of leave, and so they were going to use that when the child got out, because then they were going to be the only ones taking care of them. And at least at the NICU, they were like, people shouldn't have to make those choices. It's not okay. So I feel very strongly about that. Um, just the, the other thing I would say is that it having a kid, um, you know, and I'm lucky to have you know resources and time, and you know, my wife and I are healthy and. It does give you a sense, like a lived sense of inequality in a different way. I mean, my life, like I I come from a sort of upper middle class family. My father's a professor, you know, that kind of thing. But you just get a real sense of um, like how much I'm going to and I'm able to like put into my child and not every kid gets that. And it just makes a mockery to me of so much of the rhetoric of equality of opportunity. And you can never make these things equal. And You know, I'm somebody who at the kind of like in my job, I think about things in like, you know, big population level questions and very abstract. But, you know, obviously my my adoration of my own child is different. Um, It's intense. It's, you know, different. And the point here is not that people should not, you know, love their family or their kin above all else. Of course, like we're built to do that. But I think that, you know, stepping back, it should make you think more about, um, you know, every parent I know really believes in the importance of their parenting. And obviously, you know, the opportunities we're able to give our children matter. And knowing how unequally distributed that is at the parental level should make you think pretty deeply about whether or not you need a more equal distribution of it at the societal level or more um effort to uh redistribute that at the societal level. Um, I don't know how much sense that makes, but you know, look, it's not like before this I've, not, you know, you like. Inequality is a fact of life, but you just see how early it starts. You know, you see, you know, again, like, just like what we're able to do in terms of being there to be ca- to 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 have care, whereas other kids, like their parents are not able to be home from work. Um, you know, or their parent, like our health, like it's just different. And so, um, you know, obviously we have our own problems, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's deep in that too. And I think sometimes you hear about the Sapolsky episode, um, of the show, which uh, people should check out if they haven't. But you know, and about just. I hope, you know, and I feel reasonably confident that I'm going to be able to create a space for a son where he can grow up without undue stress, without undue trauma, without undue. And, you know, I could be wrong, right? Terrible things can happen. I'm not, I can't predict the future, but I can try. And other people who live in a less safe community or, you know, who have worse luck or who have fewer resources or whatever, can't. And so just there again, it's like this way that inequality just starts like from the first minute. And then just magnifies as we grow and, and the societal, um, the society then turns around and says, well, this one's on you and we know better, we know better, um, than to say it's all on you. It just drives home for me how much that's a violation of, I think, not just moral sense, but common sense.
2: Do you think that particularly as your son gets older and especially old enough to read your work, do you think, do you think that becoming a father is going to change the tone or direction of the kind of work you do at all?
1: I don't know. Um, it's made me think, you know, in a deeper way about making sure I'm doing work that I think would make him proud. But with some, you know, it's not that I'm proud of literally everything I do. I fuck up sometimes and but in general, I, I think my work is morally motivated and I, I think I keep to a good tone and try hard on things. So I like to think that um I you know, who knows? My my son could grow up to have very different views in politics than I do. So maybe he'll look at my work and hate me. Or I think it's more likely he'll find it boring. Um, and will have, you know, heard enough for me. <laughs> but um, so it hasn't changed my work that much. Um, and I, I, I sort of doubt that it will. I, I, don't think that, I don't think that I took the values of my work trivially before. And, uh, you know, but, but we'll see, right? You know, a lot of things can change as your life
0: circumstance changes. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
2: Our next question is from Chloe, and this is a really good one. She asks, How do you think about the tension between appearing confident in your beliefs and consequently selling an identity and keeping yourself neutral enough to allow yourself to question your own beliefs and potentially your own identities and narratives?
1: Ooh, that is such a complicated question. It's a lot, (laughs) a lot going on there. Uh, Give me a bit of interpretation on that question. Well, I think- I need to think about it for a sec. Sharpen it a little bit for me.
2: Well, this reminds me of a conversation we've had recently where- we're talking about the tension you feel between uh, you. Be, you're a public person. Um, you develop an audience, and the question for me is: How do you avoid being captured by that yeah. audience? How do you avoid feeling the pressure to perform in the way your readers and listeners expect you to perform, while also being
1: oh yeah into-
2: <laughs> while also being intellectually honest?
1: Yeah, really that's hard. Honest. So that is really good tension. So I think two thoughts. One is that I do try to cultivate. A persona on here, which is related to my real persona, but it's not exactly the same as it. But that is instrumental in that I'm constantly trying to lower the bar to hearing what I'm saying and what the guest is saying. Generously, I do a lot of work in terms of how I situate myself and in terms of how I situate the person, the people I'm with, to try to like bring down those walls. There was in the Chris Anderson episode. He has this line about, you know, how do you when somebody begins talking. How do you keep that like, trap door that keeps you from actually listening from falling, right? Particularly if you disagree with them, that trap door is like, nope, not for me. Like I'm just going to sit here and come up with counter arguments. So I do try to put forward an identity on the show. And it's again, it's part of why I don't do a lot of debates and things like that. I do try to put forward an identity where I'm always saying, you know, there's something here. Like, we could be wrong. I could be wrong. Um, it may or may not work. Uh, but you know, I, I, I try on that. So that's a part of it, right? You can have a lot of identities. And one of the ones that I'm trying to cultivate on the show and one of the kinds of community that I'm trying to cultivate on the show is a community that is like trying to do what's really, really, really hard work in terms of listening. Uh, but that said, like, I do think there are tensions on it. There are, um, there are times when, you know, as somebody just trying to understand something, like, I probably want to take more of a backseat than I do. And I feel like I need to represent something, too that people don't come on the show to just like have me be passive and i think that that tension between someone trying to learn and someone trying at times to represent is a pretty central one for me in the show you know one other thing that i was thinking about uh, elizabeth Brunig when she was on the show and i had an interesting conversation about civility and that that i that i wanted to have with her and you know i was trying to have her make an argument that she'd made in in other contexts before about you know why you should not be too caught up on the idea of civility What role civility plays, and particularly the way it can play a role in keeping certain ideas out of conversation. Right? You can you can judge things uncivil, and what you're really doing there is judging things powerless, and you've just made them you know you've made them out of bounds. Um, But something I was thinking about that we didn't discuss is that one thing that I think is important about maintaining civility yourself uh, that I note in myself is that the more uncivil I get, the angrier I get, the harder it is for me to hear the other person. Part I think we think about civility as something we're giving to the other person, right? That's a gift I give you, that I'm not like launching an ad hominem attack or something. But I think it's also something we do for ourselves where I am phrasing this in a way where I'm not getting myself so angry or dug in that I can't revise. I'm phrasing this in a way myself where I'm not creating an expectation in the audience that it's a war and that if I say that's a good point, I'll have lost the war. And so I think that there is some value in that uh, as well. Um, You know, not in every context. I don't think everything should be responded to in that way. But I think that's part of maintaining an identity inside yourself. I think there's a certain amount of emotional control inside your own self if you're going to try to keep a reasonably open mind. And to be fair, not everything in public discourse is about keeping a reasonably open mind. You know, when you're an activist or something else, you have a different mission um, oftentimes. And so the point is not that everybody needs to do it one way but in terms of how I think about it I one of the I, I do think a lot about creating a space where we can do something that's a lot harder than debate which is like actually con- conversing um and that requires being very careful that your identity both in your own head and in the mind of the audience doesn't begin to revolve around winning
2: I want to follow up on this with just one question because I think it's I think it's closer to the spirit of the, the original question uh, in which it was posed. And I mean, presumably everything you you write or you say on the show, you believe. But are there ever moments where there's something you do believe and you're hesitant or reluctant to say it or write it because you're worried it might, you know, offend your readers or turn off people who, uh, you know, who are accustomed to, to hearing oh, maybe a certain perspective yeah. from Yeah,
1: you. definitely, definitely. Um, I don't want to say that I have no boundaries on what I say. Um, it comes in different ways. What are the things that I kind of push myself on? I think that I am, in a kind of natural way, more careful about offending people I respect more in some ways because then I fear the fear what it will take out of me to get that backlash. Um, doesn't mean I won't do it, but I think I'm, I'm certain that I am a little more careful about it uh, than, than I am in, in, in at other times. In general, I don't think I'm afraid of making the arguments I think are true. Uh, I, I think that's something I'm pretty used to doing, including when it offends people on on my side. I mean, I I knew the other day when I wrote a piece suggesting that, you know, the dawning liberal, like kind of liberal pundit consensus that impeachment was a moral constitutional duty, no matter the politics. When I wrote a piece saying I thought that was wrong. Um, I like. I knew I would get pushback on that, and I did get pushback on that. Um, and you know, <laughs> I've been through a lot of political primaries, and you know, have been tough on candidates who have big fan bases, and including candidates I like to have big fan bases. And so, you know, I'm I'm kind of accustomed to that. The other piece of it is it's probably a little. It comes out, I think, a little bit more directly in what I do ask as opposed to what I don't. I think the assumption of this question is that this plays out in what I censor in myself. And I don't think that's as true as it plays out in questions that I ask or points that I push because I feel people are going to expect they're represented, even though I'm not authentically that interested in doing that representing. So it's I, I think I try to be mindful. If I'm not saying something I think is true because I'm worried about the reaction it will engender, that's something where I can tend to catch that and force myself into the space. But when i think about the show as i do from the audience perspective if somebody is saying something i think is maybe untrue or requires challenge even if i don't really want to challenge it i feel it's sometimes my responsibility or i don't want to get the backlash for not so i'll let the thing go that way even though maybe i thought an interesting point was being developed if only it could be heard in this other you know in a in a very generous way so i think that's probably i've been i've been kind of coming back to that a bit in this conversation but i think that's a more um that that's the place where that plays out the most.
2: All right. Next question is from Krishman. What's the last deeply held belief that you changed your mind on, and what were the circumstances that led to the change?
1: I'll say. Also, this this uh, questioner said you can't say veganism, basically, so I will not say that. I think the really big deeply held belief I've been evaluating, reevaluating, is persuasion. When I got started in political writing. My model of the case was sort of like that XKCD cartoon, you know, somebody is wrong on the internet. Or what is it? like? Come to bed? No, somebody's wrong on the internet. And if I don't do something, they're just going to keep being wrong. You know, I think that my view is that people are wrong on the internet. They're wrong in politics. I'm going to tell them they're wrong. I'm going to gather good evidence and make good arguments and make them in a way people can hear. And and I'm going to be right. And then people are going to be right. And then it's all going to be great. And I don't really believe that's true anymore. Um, I don't believe persuasion is possible except in pretty rare circumstances. I don't think persuasion is in any way a dominant way in which politics takes place. I think very few people are open to being persuaded. And I think that as that has become harder and harder for me to ignore and as it's been buttressed by psychological literature I've read and psychological bases of how people's politics work and identity bases of how people's politics function, I've become much more uncertain of what my own theory of political or even journalistic change is. And so this isn't a place where, you know, my mind is changed to be somewhere new that's obvious. It's a place where I'm I'm still trying to work through the implications myself, but I'm much more concerned because I recognize how hard it is for people to listen. I'm much more anxious about how they're going to hear me. If I'm making people mad, I know they're not listening. And so I know they're not going to be able to hear. It's actually a failure for me. Right. And so I think that I take people getting upset more personally than I did before because it implies more of a failure as opposed to um, it's just part of debate. Uh, you know, because again, if you're trying to be persuasive, just watching somebody get their backup means you're not going to be all that persuasive. So that's a place where like my actual fundamental orientation towards my work has changed. Now, it doesn't mean that my work has changed. You know, I still think it's important to have truthful, you know, empirical journalism out there. I I I don't exactly know the way in which it is always important, but I think it is important, and I think that it matters. But I am a lot less confident that just by doing the work I can change minds. I mean, I have people in my family who adore me, whose politics I just find baffling, and I can't change her mind. And like, I am like a Like, I'm a professional political pundit who they love, and they're not a professional political person. And if I can't change their mind. So that's been a more profound lesson about what is really happening in politics. And, you know, I think I'm still and people on the show are constantly hearing, like, my effort to build a new model of political decision making that I think is more truthful to how people actually act. But I don't know what that model implies ultimately. I don't know where that model gets me yet. Um, it, it hasn't it hasn't created a new theory some of like what you can do so much as a new theory of like, or beginning to create a new theory of why people are doing what they're already doing.
2: I don't think you're wrong about that. But to the extent that you're right, man, that's depressing. Because what the hell are we doing here if we're not changing anyone's minds or if the possibility of persuading anyone is is virtually
1: nil? That's really depressing. You know, one of the answers I used to have on this is that, Political and you know I, I cover policy quite a bit, and so administrations, even if people don't want to change their minds, there are reasonably okay incentives for them to have to figure out actual facts about the world and act on them. You know, if you're a president and you blow up the economy, yeah, you know, that's bad. You're you're going to get punished for that. If you if you create policy that at least on a quick um, path makes people's lives a lot worse, you you may get punished for that. And so I always thought that. Even if persuasion was really tough in the mass public, that at least you could kind of move elites potentially, and then you know they can make better policy decisions because they were getting better information. And I'm not saying that's not somewhat true. You know, I think that the Obama administration more or less worked like that. But like the Trump administration definitely doesn't. They don't care. <laughs> they, they, they don't. They don't care. That is not how they think about policymaking for the most part you don't think about policymaking in terms of like we need the best evidence and end up trying to nominate Stephen Moore and Herman Cain to the Federal Reserve Board. So yeah, it is depressing. It's not to say that these things don't matter. And by, and by the way, I do think this stuff matters quite a bit on places where people don't already have a lot of identity invested. you know. So uh, for instance, you have done a lot of work and I've done a little bit on the show and I'm thinking about another piece about this now around psychedelics. I don't think people have a huge like investment already on psychedelics. And so I actually think people's minds can be quite changed on it. Or veganism is hard and people do get their backs up about it. But I also think that people have not done that much argumentation and buying into one thing or another to the extent that I think that the the aggressive kind of counter the reactions you get. Are unthinking as opposed to thinking more often. And I don't want to say. I want to be very clear on what I'm saying there. I'm not saying they're not thinking reasons people would disagree with you. I think that the most um, aggressive backlash comes from people who just haven't thought about it and don't want anybody demanding they start. Um, whereas, you know, if you talk like to farmers who are thinking very thoughtfully about, uh, you know, cattle grazing and how to treat their animals, you'll get a much more serious and sensitive discussion of it. And so. You know, I think if I were taking this really seriously, what I would do is I'd probably focus more on my work in places where people were less bought in. Um, that's hard to do because, like everybody else, I'm bought into things where people are pretty bought in and and feel a lot of pressure from the news cycle in that way. But it, it, the idea—I I do want to be clear that my view is not that you can't ever persuade anybody of anything. It's that around politics, for people, for the people who are tuning in. And those people have already made up their mind about a lot of things, and they have a lot of identity invested in the people they support and the coalition they're part of, that persuasion is not much of a thing.
2: All right. The next question, this is a really long one, so I'll do my best to condense it a little bit. And it's from Entertainment Strategy Guy. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what the first and last name there is. Uh, This one's about... uh, a podcast you did last year where you had an advertisement uh, basically recommending that people eat less chicken to decrease animal suffering and he is someone who is concerned about climate change and he basically asked uh, you know if you replace chicken consumption with beef or pork that would actually exasperate the global warming problem and so he wants to know uh, how you balance animal welfare, sustainability, climate change, cost, health quality all these things um, with
1: your or in your diet habits, so the issue here is that if you want to reduce animal suffering and particularly the number of animals who suffer, but you still want to eat meat, what you want to do is stop eating chicken and fish and just eat beef like you can a family can eat like one cow a year, and cows on the realm of animal treatment are treated pretty well, whereas you can eat a chicken in a night and chickens are tortured to death so you know, one step, which is the the organization um, that had advertised, but but says something. I believe Bruce Friedrich in his first episode here, we talked about this a lot. You know, said if you just want to take a step here to reduce animal suffering, give up chicken, go beef. But if you look at most data on climate emissions, and Friedrich has pushed back on me on this, and so I'm just going to say that I'm going to reflect the consensus here that I've seen, but some people argue with it uh, beef is just a lot worse. Beef is, you know, pound for pound, just a much worse, much worse on the environment. Um, and the answer there is become a vegan. Like I honestly don't, like you don't get to have everything. (laughs) That's why I am, that's why I don't eat any animal meat at all, uh, or any eggs. And I don't think it's such a terrible sacrifice. Like I have an incredibly varied, wonderful diet, but Yeah, like something is asked of you there. If you want to take those things seriously, like there is an answer. It's not a super hard answer. It's not an expensive answer. It's actually a lot cheaper than a lot of the alternatives, not an unhealthful answer. It's actually quite healthy. Um, You know, go go vegan uh, or cut down everything. Or I will say, though, that in a world where those two things are just like in total collision, I have a lot of trouble saying that chickens should suffer and die because we refuse to cut back on climate emissions and other ways. Like I just I feel like we are the ones causing this problem. And if it means we don't get to eat chicken or beef, certainly at the levels we do now, like I'm I'm okay with that. Um I, you know, I, I, I want to provide as many off ramps around animal suffering, which I care about a lot as I can, and around greenhouse gases, which I care about a lot as I can, but I'm not you know, it's. I think people want an answer where you don't really have to give anything up, and you might have to.
2: Okay, next question is from Matthew, and he asks, what is your take on ranked choice voting or other similar voting methods? What, if any, impact do you think it would have on political polarization?
1: So I'm pro-ranked choice or other proportional representation systems, um, and I don't think it's a cure-all. So. If you want to read somebody who's very good on this, Willie Drutman, the political scientist who writes at Vox a lot, he's at New America. He's also writing a book on, on some of these issues. He's great, and I think he's more of a believer that ranked choice voting would solve a lot of our polarization ills than I am. I think that I look at other countries that are sort of like ours that have ranked choice voting so or some other kind of, of more proportionate representation, which you have in Europe quite a bit. I mean, the the, the systems differ. They're not all ranked choice. Um but basically, what you're getting there is the ability to have multiple parties. The, the fundamental thing you're trying to solve for is in a system like ours, where getting if you get 51% of the vote um, in a house seat, um, or I guess 51% of the electoral college votes at the presidency, or 51% of the vote at the governorship, you get everything. And if you get 49, you get nothing, and if you get 13, you really get nothing. Uh, ranked choice has another thing, which is nice, which is that you can make sure that in a primary, um, you're getting kind of a consensus candidate as opposed to like somebody sneaking through because the other candidates ended up splitting the vote. But I actually think it's a less important effect. I think the the thing in our system is that because there's an incentive to get that 51 and because there's nothing for getting that 13, you have uh, different groups going to coalition with each other and any system like that will eventually create an overwhelming pressure for a two-party system. Those two parties can absorb a lot of internal coalitions, right? The Democrats have a social Democrat party within the Democratic Party now. Republicans have a kind of Trumpist party within the Republican Party now. Um, you know, there have been blue dogs, right? Like our, our parties are more multi-party than you think they are, but they are ultimately organized in this um, you know, one versus the other structure. So Countries that have multi-party systems, if you if 13% of the vote gets you 13% of the seats so you can actually build party strength by getting 13 and then 17 and then 22, like, that's great. Uh, I think it's a reasonable way to do a system. The upside is that it's not as fragile uh, against somebody like, say, Donald Trump coming into a party, taking it over, and then you're like right next to the presidency. Um, the downside is that extreme parties can rise more rapidly, which I think you see a lot in Europe. You know, one way of thinking about it is that um, proportionate systems, like they're they're a little less fragile, but they're more open. Um, and our system is less open, but it is more fragile to at least or catastrophically fragile, right? Um, if you get the wrong outcome, you can really get the wrong outcome. So I don't look at Europe, where you have a lot of these systems, and I and see uh, political structures that are absorbing the pressures of this era unbelievably better than ours is. Um, I would probably be more in favor of like straight up parliamentary uh, political systems in terms of how many of our problems it would solve than I would, in you know, in terms of changing the uh, nature of the electoral choice. But, you know, so I'm pro-ranked choice. I think people overstate the number of our problems it would likely ameliorate. Next
2: question. Ooh, this is a good
1: one. <laughs> this is from
2: Leonidas. And he asks... Socrates famously never wrote anything, yet it was Socrates' relentless verbal questioning that arguably initiated philosophy. Uh, Do you think interviews and podcasting is a return to dialogue? Are there any truths that are only accessible (laughs) through a verbal form of investigation, which somehow gets lost when you write them down?
1: I often think of myself having started a podcast as being a modern-day Socrates, Ah, so yes— and, and in the podcasting space, I think I'm not the only one. <laughs> uh, so th- th- there's, a, there's a lot of us who are, who are modern day play those now. I take this in two ways. It's something I've actually been talking a bit about on the podcast recently. I talked about it a bit the, at the end of the Michael brennan Dougherty episode. Is I've really developed a lot of sensitivity to how different political arguments are when they're had in different places. And in particular, I've been really struck by how people come on the podcast having written something that is very sharp edged about me, about the world. And then I bring them on and it's all soft and fuzzy and, you know, oh, you know, I didn't mean it quite like that. And, you know, and I'll often have these questions. I'm like, no, 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 like, like, give me, like, give me the hit. And then, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not quite as sharp as it is in the writing. And so one way to look at that is to say, well, this is great. If you just have people in conversation, it reduces polarization. If you just have people in conversation, they're more likely to find agreement, right? If you have people in conversation, these human social uh, norms come into play and people don't want to have a fight. And so like, doesn't that mean conversation is the way forward? And I'm not sure it does, actually. Uh, I The reason I say that is that people get into a room with you and they're nice, but then they still have that same opinion when they leave. And so sometimes in conversation, you can think differences are more bridgeable than they actually are. And it's seeing things written down where people have researched and really like sharpened the boundaries of what they're talking about, that you see how they're actually going to act or how they really think um, when it's just them there and not you, when they're not trying to please you at all. And so I like having both mediums at my disposal, and I like trying to learn through both mediums. I obviously read a lot, but I talk to a lot of people and the two things are different. But I think it is actually a mistake to think that either one of them is the truest path to, or the only true path, certainly towards you know understanding each other because as human beings we act in different ways uh, as different things are called forward from us we act in different ways in different mediums we act in different ways in different structures and so you know whether dialogue is showing you something that is realer about the world or less real about the world actually requires you to, to first answer in the place where you're most um, sensitive to this playing out does it more, does it more look like the incentives of being in dialogue with a person who disagrees with you, or does it more look like the incentives of writing on your own for an audience that presumably does agree with you? And so you have to actually ask yourself in a, in a rigorous way, what kind of behavior am I trying to predict? So I like both forms, but um, but I don't think the fact that conversation is more agreeable necessarily makes it superior. I think it makes it in some ways more fun, and I think it makes it uh, easier to do that kind of learning we've talked about from people you don't agree with because you – you can see and i certainly think there's value in seeing you know how people respond to counter argument but um sometimes i think people extol its virtues in a way that what they're really just extolling is a kind of agreeableness that is nice but doesn't always reflect real world action in the way it it needs to to be that useful i mean socrates is such a weird model for yeah. For, you know for, a lot more about this than i do as a political it, theorist he's a weird model for conversation
2: because that's explicitly what he was not doing really I and mean, he was the biggest asshole in athens because his whole shtick was like, hey, look, fellas, I don't know anything, but you don't know shit either. And his whole sort of project was just exposing how ignorant everyone else was by sort of undercutting the, their presuppositions and their biases. But he was never actually making a point other than to explode everyone else's sense of, of what they knew and didn't know. So it's, it wasn't really a conversation.
1: It also seems uh, to me that uh, my my sense of the Socrates uh, game is that when I read that stuff? One, it's a lot of arguing with straw men. Um, you know, it, it definitely seems that you know he was getting to write or Plato was getting to write for Socrates, uh, the, the other side of the argument sometimes. And two, that Socrates had a whole thing about how he doesn't know anything. Doesn't really seem to be that that's how he felt about the situation. Yeah. He
2: was also the wisest man. In right. Athens, according to the Oracle. <laughs> so.
1: Right. And but also the wisest man because he knew how but he, yeah. he didn't really think that. I yeah. mean, he was pretty full of well, his own Hence wisdom.
2: his legendary assholery.
1: Yes. Uh, <laughs> well the, So not to not to roll over on Socrates, but um but I'm uh I don't know when I when I read those back in college, I wasn't quite as blown away by 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 Socrates' destructions of like <laughs> it, it, it's like early YouTube, right? Like Socrates destroys college student. <laughs>
2: <laughs> He's owning the libs. <laughs> uh,
1: well, before we move on, he always I, had the microphone too. In that way, <laughs>
2: so it's a lot like YouTube. I'm curious though, because this is embedded in the question. I mean, why is it that you think people love podcast so much right now? What is Is there this hunger for for this long form conversations that people are just not getting anywhere else that they can only get in places like this? So two things.
1: So one, I think podcasting actually colonizes an uncolonized space in our lives. Podcasting is usually the second thing someone is doing. You can't read an article as a second thing you're doing. It's like hard to wash the dishes or drive a car or walk your dog and read an article. Um, or watch a video or whatever, but you can do that while podcasting. So one one thing for the explosion of podcasting popularity is it went into a relatively uncolonized space. Um, You know, there was some stuff there, like obviously Walkmans had created that, but but one of the points I love, which I think it is um, Cal Newport who made it, but I might have it wrong, is that, you know, the Walkman itself is a pretty recent invention. It's only since the 80s that we've been able to have something in your ears wherever you go, so you never have to be bored. So there's something very new about this. Um, and as we're getting, you know, we're we're just giving more and more options now. So that's one piece of it. Uh, I don't think it is necessarily podcast instead of. I think it is podcast instead of like washing the dishes quietly or walking quietly. It is not podcast instead of watching cable news or watching um, or reading, you know, something on the Internet. That's one piece of it. Um, the other, though, is that I do think that there is a hunger for conversation. You know, all, all my points about, you know, don't overstate the value of agreeable conversation aside, the internet and particularly political discourse, but not only political discourse, and we should remember that like the most popular podcasts are often not political, um, but political discourse has become incredibly uh, – it's become really about appealing to your own side. And a lot of people do want to hear arguments in tension with each other and ideas in tension with each other. I mean, Twitter to me, which I know not everybody is on and it's not the end of the world, but I do think it structures in politics an increasing amount of behavior because it is where, I mean, it is the president's favored communication medium, for instance. And just like the other day on Twitter, something happened that I thought was telling. So Nate Silver, who's been on the show and is a friend of mine and somebody I respect a lot. So I had written something on Twitter that uh, Nate disagreed with. I think it was about Pete Buttigieg, but I can't remember. It was like something small, right? And, uh, you know, I think it was about the amount of media coverage he was or wasn't receiving. And Nate wrote back, uh, you know, like not to be dunking on Ezra, but I just like had a different view of it. And it's so funny to me. Like it was just a conversation. Do you know what I mean? Like it was just a totally normal conversation that like back in the days of blogging, you wouldn't have called it like dunking on someone or but Twitter creates this feeling where, you know, everything is being measured by how much applause it gets from from the audience. And everything has this quality of like a dunk. And so I often find myself on Twitter when I when I try to ask somebody something. Um, you know, I was I was in a conversation today, I think it was with John Favreau and I was like right like, I wish there was a tweet, uh, like an emoji that said, like, this question is being asked non-passively aggressively. Because like when you ask somebody something in response to something they said, it often seems like you're about to like bring down the hammer. It's such a bad medium for conversation. I think a lot of things feel like that. A lot of even, even when there is conversation, it feels fake. I would not call for the most part what happens on Twitter like conversation. It's performative. And cable news i certainly don't think is conversation and you know more and more things are like that and and the way as media entities fracture and their audiences fracture they're not writing as much for everybody i mean some still are but they're writing more and more for you know an, an audience and you know even if they're not trying to do that it subtly invades the writing and people feel it and so i think people feel an increasing smallness in what they're consuming it's narrower it's built to travel more, right? It's built so that you can put it on Facebook and find it on Google Search. And even if you have no context, you know you can totally like jump in on what's going on. And I'm not saying that doesn't actually have some some valuable qualities. I think it does. But podcasts have this quality of often very real conversation. And they're just wooly. Like you can, they can be uncertain and hesitant and 30% and, and I think that people miss that. I think that it's a corrective to something that has gotten overly packaged and overly social and overly um, performative, although I guess podcasts can also, of course, be performative. But I, I just think that they they occupy a different space. So I think they they both are managing right now to occupy a different space in people's lives and to sort of counter program uh, media that is increasingly pulled towards kind of small, very tightly packaged, Things that are driven by social media applause um, or kind of Google search blandness, and you know, people, you know, people rightfully often want to get out of that, or at least want a corrective to that in their own heads.
2: Next question is from Jacob, and he asks: Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the the U.S. and about humanity in fifty years, hundred years, a thousand years?
1: Why? I am probably, oof. It's hard because how do you define optimistic and pessimistic? I would say I am definitely pessimistic on the thousand-year frame, in that I think we are just inventing too many things that could kill us in a massive way. Uh, and you know, I think we're all very proud of ourselves that for you know a hundred years or a little bit less than a hundred years, we've not had a bunch of nuclear wars. But, you know, if you expect that in any, let's say in any hundred year period, there is a 5% chance of a nuclear war, well, then over, you know, a huge like nuclear war, then over a thousand years, you got a pretty good chance. Um, Or similarly around a pandemic, Um, you know, although the chances of that are higher, I think, than 5% over a hundred years. So I worry over the hundred year frame, or I'm sorry, the thousand year frame that Climate change, weapons of unbelievable mass destruction, not just nuclear, but but particularly here biologic, uh, and I guess maybe chemical. Um, <laughs> asteroids, obviously climate change is a real player here. And on the thousand year time frame, you know, who knows, right? We could have by then invented amazing things and suck it all out of the air. But, you know, i I don't tend to be super spun up about AI as a threat to humanity, but I don't fully discount those who are. So you're just dealing with a long period of time. For some things to go catastrophically wrong, and I think that if you look at long periods of time, they often do. Uh, so, thousand years, I'm concerned. Fifty or hundred years is hard because it has a lot to do with what you think of global warming um, and what you think those effects will be on those timeframes. A hundred years, I'm probably worried enough about it that I would say I'm pessimistic, or at least at least somewhat pe- like on the pessimistic side of humanity's condition in 100 years. 50 years I think the effects it will be quite dramatic. But I think we'll still be, you know, growing as a planet and, you know, absent other terrible things happening. I, I I can imagine. I can imagine life on average being quite a bit better 50 years from now than it is today. So yeah, so I'd say optimistic mixed at the 100 level, optimistic for 50, mixed at 100 with, you know, the heavy weight there on what you think about global warming. And then at the 1000 year level quite concerned
2: (laughs) so accepting climate change accepting ai what worries you the most what freaks you out the most
1: uh probably pandemics um we have an incredibly globalized world in a way that has never been true for a truly infectious and deadly pandemic and we've gotten a couple times luckier than uh you know we had feared even things like bird flu which were quite bad burnt themselves out but it wouldn't have taken that much for some of those and i've done reporting on this to have uh changed in a way um, that made that went the other way right that instead of burning themselves out it went <laughs> uh, this is not a pun viral and um similarly i'm quite worried about antibiotic resistance and 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 superbugs of that sort so yeah those two are probably the the key ones but i don't know i mean we're going to be able to do things with biological warfare that really scare me. You'll be able to do it in a garage eventually. To some degree, I already can.
2: That's the thing that the capacity for a very small yeah. number of people to just wreak global havoc that, is just terrifying yeah. and so inevitable,
1: right? I mean, it's- I don't want to say inevitable, but it's it's terrifying. And it's one of these things where if I were president, something that I would personally want to do. Is invest a lot more in quite unlikely, quite catastrophic tail risk. And the problem is, the incentives in politics are totally against that, right? The incentives in politics are to protect against things that are often not that bad, but going on right now and people can feel them. Uh, But not to, you know, nobody ever knows if you prevented (laughs) a biologic weapon super attack. And certainly not if you put in, you don't get any credit for putting in place a detection systems that did it 20 years from now. But, you know, somebody needs to do it. <laughs> well,
2: well, sticking with this uh, with this theme, the next question is from Dan. And he asks, what fictional dystopia do you believe has the best chance of actually becoming reality? And how would you prevent it?
1: Oh, I've said this before. I think it's the Ready Player One VR dystopia. Um, I think the dystopia where a huge percent of the population is just living in a VR fantasy world because either VR has gotten so good that the quality of your life has to be in the real world um, or because like the real world has gotten so bad that the quality of VR doesn't have to be that good to outweigh the real world is pretty high. Um, I mean, look at how easy it is to addict us to our phones. Look at how many people, uh, you know, particularly young men, but not only, are increasingly addicted to these massive online multiplayer games to the extent that like there's really an argument in economics about whether or not it's partially responsible for the decline in male labor force participation, that they're just like a lot of men who it's, like, I would prefer to play the video game. And this stuff is super, super, super primitive compared to what we're going to have in 20 or 30 years. Like not forever i mean i've used some of the really high-end vr sets and it's just amazing you walk into them and you realize we invented vr it's done it's like it is almost good enough now and so as that gets cheap and it gets more powerful uh, again i think i've probably made this point but i often think that the way we should think about vr is less like a consumer electronics product and more like a highly addictive drug i think that analysis of vr probably shares more in common with analysis of um. It's going a little far to call it. it. It can't kill you, so I don't want to go as far as to say opioids or something like that. But it, you know, cigarettes maybe actually isn't a bad um, analogy. But it's also encompassing in a way those things aren't, right? It could become the only thing you do. So there's something very scary to me about how we are thrilled about investing in the deployment of this technology. It's going to be a massive atten- attention addiction machine. And the only incentive is to make it better and better and better. And we already know we're good enough at doing that that we can really addict people. So a world where 20% of the population is functionally like VR shut-ins doesn't seem implausible to me um, and concerns me quite a bit.
2: It almost feels like we're all just sort of rats in this giant Skinner box. And we're just just innovating and innovating and creating and creating without any real thought of the implications. Yes. Down the road. And eventually, you know, John Stewart had that great joke however many years ago, where he's like, you know, the last thing a human being will say will be some guy in a lab coat saying it worked <laughs> yeah, and, then like, and then just fade to black. You yep. know, I mean, that feels it feels about right. I think that's totally true. So our next question is from Alex. He writes the intro of the April Farce episode of the show in which you go on to interview Pete Buttigieg. You describe him as a professor style of candidate as opposed to pugilist like Elizabeth Warren or. Bernie Sanders, or a preacher like Cory Booker. I believe this plays into a broader media trend of underselling the expertise and potential of Warren, or should I say Professor Warren? So do you agree that your framing plays into these kinds of sexist ideas? And do you think there is a way to fight this tendency in coverage elsewhere?
1: So this is something I got, I think, some understandable pushback on. And I had thought about it in advance, um, but probably should have explained it differently. So I want to say here that I'll be defensive about this, but but it's on me for being less clear than I intended to be. And I think that probably if I could go back and do it again, I would not have used "professor" as a category label. So let me let me sort of offer the argument against what I said. I had sort of cut the the field into these three like professor, pugilist, um, preacher categories. And <laughs> as happens when you try to do an alliterative categorization like that, probably uh, you know oversimplified a bit. But basically, what I was saying. Was that there's a style of politics that views politics as a fight. That's really Bernie Sanders, but it's also very much Elizabeth Warren's self-presentation. Um, her last two books have had the word fight in the title. Her announcement speech had the word fight 25 times. Um, she frame she has been very clear. I think it's because of her run with Scott Brown, um, who attacked her as like an egghead professor. Uh, And so she's really pushed herself as a fighter for the middle class. So she is very clear that she is not – or at least has been – that she's not presenting herself as like some professor here who thinks that if you just come up with some good ideas and talk to people, you're going to win. That in fact, it's about taking on and breaking up the banks, taking on and breaking up Amazon. So to me, I am working with Elizabeth Warren's self-presentation there. Um, but a lot of people are like she is a professor, or at least was, you know, Harvard professor, which is a you know apex professor. You can say the same about my categorization, by the way, of Buttigieg. He was actually in the arm in, in the navy, right? He served in Afghanistan. So here I've got like the guy who is actually a military veteran, a fighter, um, and I'm calling him a professor. But what I'm trying to get at is styles of politics, and, and Buttigieg does not present politics as a fight in that way. He presents it as. You know, people of goodwill presents a lot like Obama did, can come together. You know, we can understand each other. We can figure out the answers to the stuff together. If we figure out good answers, it'll appeal to people. Um, You know, and then you have this sort of preachers in the the moral value side of it. So, you know, as I thought about this, um, I think I got the categorization and how they were running correct. I I do believe that. I think the mistake, though, is that I think professor doesn't mean what I kind of tried to make it mean there. Um, one, it's a job people actually hold. <laughs> uh, so I think it, it encompasses too much. And Elizabeth Warren is clearly – I mean she's – by far of the candidates, by the way, I am by far the most impressed by her campaign, right? So this was actually – this was not me making a judgment on who I preferred. It's more like me looking at their political styles and theories of political action. But I'm by far the most impressed by her campaign, in part because they've been so aggressive about coming up with policy solutions and actually trying to, to create a, a way of thinking about the world and a way of thinking about how you would solve these problems. That, you know, kind of her theory of the case is that you elect a fighter like her and she will go to war, win the war, and then know what to do in the aftermath. Um so, you know, I think that I think that the thing that I would hold from that um description is that. There's a difference between the candidates who are framing politics as a fight. Buttigieg did not use the word "fight" at all in his announcement speech, where almost every other candidate has used it a lot. Um, and the candidates who are viewing it as a—I don't know exactly what to replace a "professor" with—but but this ability um, to sort of go out, understand each other, and kind of just like think your way through it, and you know, you'll, you'll you'll get there together. And then the the preachers who have this sort of Booker, and I think, to some degree, um chris Kristen have this view that you can call Americans to to a higher moral self, you know, a, a, an act of radical love. their their rhetoric is much more religiously inflected that I think is a different way of understanding how you might do this. You know you 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 pull people together in a kind of deeper than their politics way and then use that to build towards a political set of solutions. Yeah, I, mean, I think
2: Obama fits into that category. And he, of course, was also a law professor.
1: Yeah, I think he is pure professor. Um, I think that his view was like, you'll get everybody around the table you know, and he will, you know, you'll, you'll be in good faith and you'll negotiate and you'll debate. And like, I actually don't see him as much as a, a, of a preacher candidate. That said, um, you know, something that I, I was then having a conversation about this on Twitter, which actually was a conversation with Anne Helen Peterson and some other folks. And one thing that I would reflect on um, and have reflected on since is I uh, subsequently went and looked at how often candidates use the word fight in their announcement speeches. And I was really struck that the women used it a lot more. So if I'm remembering these numbers correctly uh, uh, from memory, I think Beto used it twice. Bernie Sanders used it twice. Cory Booker used it eight times. Gillibrand, 21. Harris, 23. Warren, 25. Um, Whereas Hope, um, Buttigieg used it nine times, uh, eight times, something like that. Uh, Gillibrand, three times. And basically nobody else used it at all. And looking at that and and having this conversation, um, I do think that something going on here is men are assumed to be fighters, and so they don't have to explicitly say it over and over and over again, whereas People want a fighter and women candidates, female candidates have to do a lot more to prove they're a fighter. And so they do have to say it over and over and over again. And that leaves a lot less room for this hope and change messaging. Something this made me think about was Hillary Clinton in 2008 and 2012, who got made fun of for so often using the word fight, for coming onto stage using using the music fight song. Um, There's an article in the Washington Examiner in 2008 entitled, Hillary Clinton wants you know she's the fightingest fighter Whoever fought. And the idea she just like she says it so often, but that's that I think um, is a very gendered thing. And so, even if I do think it's true that a candidate like Warren or or even some of the other um, women candidates are really trying to present as fighters, um, that may be because the way politics is structured and the gendered way they're looked at, they have to insist on that um, in a way the the men don't. Uh, And and that's certainly something that I think should be taken into account.
2: Do you think the media is? in general, perpetuating these constructs um, or doing anything at all to obliterate them or to, to counter them?
1: Certainly not to obliterate them. Um, yeah, yeah, I definitely think the media perpetuates this stuff. I, I don't think it's come through so much in the fighter. I, I, wouldn't, I don't think it's come through in my categorization of this. I think it comes through in, ele- in the question of electability. Um, I had a really good conversation on the site with Kate Mann, who's been on this show before, but but this was on, on Vox, which you can go search my interview with her if you want. But she was making this good point that, um, you know, for instance, Warren suffers from doubts about electability, and there's some reasonable reasons for that. She polls lower in Massachusetts than you might expect. She kind of underperformed, uh, you know, say Barack Obama's results in 2012 in her own state. You know, so so there's some actual issues there. But on the other hand, you know, when you talk to people about it and they try to justify it, they'll say things like, "Oh, you know, the DNA thing with the the the, the you know, with the attacks on her for being Pocahontas." And when you think about the missteps that get female candidates ruled unelectable versus what men are allowed to just do. You know, Donald Trump does 20 insane things before breakfast. Joe Biden is a plagiarist who's got a reputation for being handsy. Like Beto O'Rourke went around live journaling. Pete Buttigieg is mayor of a mid-sized city <laughs> with no like even statewide elected experience. And her point is that there is a search for fatal flaw with female presidential candidates that is very aggressive. And when it is found, it is wielded against them very uh, effectively, whereas men are allowed to do a lot of things that are, you know, I think, objectively as mistaken, but people don't then turn around and say, oh, yeah, that tall white guy is unelectable. And so the idea is not that electability is totally fake, because if you have a society that has gendered expectations or sexist expectations, electability can be real even if it is unfair, but nevertheless, uh, the way it is which, in which it is getting wielded, I think that the media does a lot of coverage of these ill-defined terms like electability without in any way seriously interrogating what they mean or why they look the way they look. And it definitely contributes to the underlying problem.
2: All right, let's pivot to our lightning round phase of this conversation. And the first question is from Kevin. And he asks, as someone who's been pretty public about your journey to veganism and who used to write a a bit about food at the WashPo, what one or two vegan dishes would you recommend to non-vegans who want to do more plant-based cooking at home?
1: So the first thing I'd say is think cuisine, not dish. There are a lot of cuisines where if you're eating vegetarian, you're eating vegan. So Chinese food, Thai food, um, Vietnamese food, all of which I cook a lot of. And those are really, really great because you can make almost anything and it's going to be, you know, if you just take out the meat, it's going to be vegan. So I do a lot of cooking out of like Fuchsia Dunlop Szechuan cookbooks, which I love. Um, You know, then I do a lot of just, you know, make a grain, roast off two vegetables, put in some herbs and it's great. You know, make a big pot of quinoa, you know, roast off Brussels sprouts and I don't know, red onion and, you know, something else and put in some uh some herbs. So I don't think cooking this way is hard at all. You have to learn how to do it. The mistake is when you're trying to make things that really need meat have meat, or you're working within cuisines that are not built for this. Like French cuisine is a disaster. Breakfast is kind of hard as a vegan, um, you know, or certainly like like eggs are, you know, they're just not vegan. And I don't think vegans have a good egg replacement. Um, no offense to to the many people trying, but. Yeah, like I would I would look for cuisines and in particular Asian and Indian food really really works well here. Um or most Asian cuisines and and Indian food really work well here. I'd also recommend if you're looking for, you know, if I were to recommend like one good cookbook, uh it has a kind of silly name, but I think Salad Samurai is just an incredibly good cookbook. <laughs> That's a great name. <laughs> yeah, it's um and it's vegan cookbook and it's kind of not just what I would consider salads, but everything I've made from there is great and it's the one that I find myself opening up the most often. Um, If I just need a weeknight dinner.
2: What is your favorite guilty pleasure movie?
1: Oh, definitely Wimbledon. <laughs> <laughs> I have is that the deep... HBO doc? With no, the... no, it's oh. not. This is a Paul Bettany, Kristen Dunn's romantic comedy from, I don't know, maybe the early aughts, late 90s. And I just think it's great. I, it is like, if I am sick, uh, it is a movie I watch or have watched again and again. I like a lot of kind of, I like a lot of snappy romantic comedies, usually with British protagonists. So sort of witty romantic comedies are, are, big, are a big pleasure of mine. And I don't know, Wimbledon, unfairly unheralded, but, you know, the only movie that truly matters. <laughs> What's your favorite cocktail? The Vukareh. It's like in between, I would say, an old-fashioned and a Manhattan, but but I love it. Uh, so it's uh, a little bit under an ounce of rye whiskey, same amount of cognac, same amount of sweet vermouth, like three quarters of an ounce each, and then two teaspoons of benedictine and a dash of bitters. And it's just wonderful. That's classy as fuck. I, I am classy <laughs> as fuck. <laughs>
2: uh, what would be three movies tv shows or comic books that have shaped your thinking or you just love and would recommend
1: yeah i can't i don't know if i can do shape your thinking i'm I'm not so good at uh, a lot of people like oh well this one forever change I, I don't have that as often um stuff that comes to mind i love peter david's x factor yeah his x factor run from starting in i think about 2005 you can find it on marvel unlimited it's it's Mad Max: Multiple Man, and it's a it's a great kind of beautiful long arc, and it's one of my favorite comic series ever. um I love the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, like that. Just that that probably is pretty formative for me, actually. And then I would say season three of Daredevil on Netflix was actually perfect. Really, I like the first one way better. First one was great. Third one was better. Oof. Yeah, Oof. season two I is okay. Um, but season three, I thought was actually like a masterful and unusually good ending. Um, and because they actually cut the show as sad as I am about that, it was able to have a finality that these things almost never do. Uh, I, I actually thinking back on it, it clearly had a little bit of an opening to go further. But nevertheless, the ending worked as a final ending in a way that these things so rarely do. So if you've not, if you, particularly if you were on the Daredevil train in season one and you got off in season two, which was what happened to me, check out season three. You don't need much of season two to get into it. And it brings back Kingpin and it's just, it's just great.
2: I just found out that that show got cut. It it hurt my heart. Yeah. It still hurts. Real good, right? Uh, This one is, we've kind of touched on this earlier, but I want to ask anyway, because I just think it's funny. Um, It's someone asking you've joked before about the kind of music you listen to while you're writing and apparently you described it as something like melancholy electronica Sure. <laughs> um, so, so
1: what is it exactly that you listen to when you're writing well, there's, no way, there's no way to describe what it is exactly number one um i, I can give a couple recommendations here though for sure uh i like i mentioned taiko before it was music i love uh i like cuba Color. um she's a little bit outside of this genre but i'm a big toki Monsta fan. Um, I, I when I listen to sets, which I I listen to a lot of sets actually. I like the old Ali Farben sets, which you can find on Spot on SoundCloud. I'm sorry, the color sets. Uh, they're not all great, but there's a lot of great ones you can check out. His I think it's called like his Surprise Fusion set, something like that, which is really good. Um, usually I look for sets that are. They're often called sunrise sets. <laughs> I like if you want to describe it, it's sunrise sets. It's like. You should be asleep by now, or you're just waking up. But at any rate, it's like interesting, but it's not as hard as breaks or um a bunch of the other a bunch of the other subcategories. Uh when I'm writing, something I've listened to a lot recently, uh actually over the past year or two, has been Poppy Aykroyd's uh album Sketches, which is piano music, but it's just really, really beautiful. Um, and I'm a I'm a big fan of her work. I just have to say
2: it's weird, but what I'm on right now is the Interstellar soundtrack.
1: Just re- I'm telling you. It's a, people have recommended that to me.
2: Listeners, if you want to write the next great American novel, just play the Interstellar soundtrack <laughs> on a loop. It's amazing. It's amazing. I'll,
1: I'll offer one more recommendation because I've been listening to it a lot recently. Um, Anjuna Deep is a record label. Maybe Anjuna is. Um, anyway, Anjuna Deep edition 201. You can find it on SoundCloud with David Holm. That's a great set. I've been I've been real into that recently. What's something you don't understand about yourself? There's a lot I don't like. Why I can't stop thinking the same thought over and over again? <laughs> um, my own history is a bit of a mystery to me. Uh, when I was growing up, the main thing you would say about me is I don't work hard. Uh, that like I did poorly in school. I did poorly socially. There's like I just like I was a guy with like some potential, but I did not work hard. And like, that was a thing. Like I was a fuck up. And then at some point it flipped and I became extremely hardworking, like pathologically hardworking. And I'm not saying it's great. People have heard the workism episode. I'm probably too bought into that kind of thing. But nevertheless, um, the way in which what you would have seen as a defining trait in my personality took a 180 degree flip is strange to me. I can come up with answers, you know, I found stuff that I loved and I was in a different context, but they don't they don't fully explain to me. I feel like the person I am now would have never let what happened to me when I was a kid happen. And the person I was when I was younger could never have done what I did now. And it's not like most people just become adults and central features of the personality do a 180. So that's something about myself that I've always found puzzling and i think it's one reason i kind of take some of my you know accomplishments a little bit less to heart because something happened that it doesn't quite feel like it was just me like it doesn't quite feel like i had control over it um and i don't really know what to make of that it just came to me i'm
2: going to ask a question that's not on our sheet oh blasphemy. Feel free me if you want <laughs> um you know, it's about meditation and yeah i'm, I'm curious what the practice of meditation has taught you about your own mind—that was surprising or illuminating. Or- but I have no control over
1: it. Yeah, exactly. Like that's the thing. I mean, I thought you'd meditate and you'd calm down your stress and you'd, you know, be able to focus. And the thing about meditation—it's genuinely scary—is it whatever is happening up there, it, it it detaches you from your own sense of self a little bit, which I know is part of the point. But I do not have control. My thoughts are thinking themselves. And they're often not the ones I want to have, and they're arousing emotional responses in me that I don't want to have. And I don't know. I think that, I think that's hard. Um, it's funny. I went on this meditation retreat, and I had this great moment with the teacher there, where I was talking to her about um, the way in which this one kind of thought kept coming back, and I like went on this whole riff about how thoughts are thinking themselves and it's, you know, like I got this like subroutine and like a bureaucracy that won't stop doing something that the rest of the companies decided to move on from. And, and, you know, I, I, I thought I was like, it was like a profound, of frustrated insight about, um, you know, monkey mind, but she's like, yeah, maybe try to identify with that part, not the part keeping it down. And that was really helpful for me. So in some ways, you know, the, the idea that there was more, um, integration in that part of me, than i was giving credit for it. some of that division was something that like i was creating and that you know my subconscious heard something to tell me that that was also useful but yeah the the lack of control over my own mental monologue and attention has been i think it is i think it is an unsettling thing to realize how are
2: you thinking about the role of technology in your son's life how about your relationship and your use of technology when when he's around how are you going to model that for him
1: the, I don't know about for his life yet. I think that um, it would be unwise for me to make big pronouncements here when I have a nine-week-old. You know, we'll see how things feel when he's three or four. Um, for myself, I know that as he becomes more aware, I do not want to see him to see me ignoring him to be on my phone. I do not want him to see me modeling an idea that my phone is more interesting than my family or than taking a walk or whatever. It's not to say I can never be on my phone, but I don't want the message to be that the phone is more interesting than life. And I feel like, you know, one one piece of parenting advice I've gotten over and over and over again is that kids don't listen to what you say, they watch what you do. And there's enough modeling of I think bad phone behavior that I don't want to add to that. So, you know, what rules we'll have and all of that, we'll see. Um but what rules I have for myself are gonna become, I think I'm already reasonably okay at this, but I'm gonna become a lot stricter. I think it's okay for him to see me on my Kindle, but not my phone.
2: I'm gonna steal the question from Tim Ferriss, because I think it's a great question. He always asks his guests if they could put a word or phrase on a billboard that the whole world would see, what would be on it?
1: So funny. I, um, uh, I've uh, i heard Tim ask this question too, and I don't think about it. Um. Number one, I don't. I sometimes will hear this question asked, and people are like, you know, breathe, or which actually is not a bad one. Breathe would it be? (laughs) But I think I think you're not going to convince anybody of anything on a billboard. And mostly, if you're on the freeway, you could use a moment of levity. So I would just probably put, you're almost there. That's what my billboard would say.
2: (laughs) I think that's a great place to end.
1: Uh, Sean, thanks very much, man. I appreciate it. This is a
2: blast. always
1: fun. And uh, to all of you in the audience, who sent hundreds of really, really, really great questions in. I'm grateful. Uh, This was a lot of fun to do, and I hope it was of some fun for you too. Um, I want to also thank, of course, my producer, Jeff Geld. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production.
0: This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen.